Luke chapter 4. Um, so last uh, time we were together, <clears throat> and we, were, we spoke about the threefold office of Christ under the main office or title of Christ, who is our mediator. If you remember, Jesus Christ is our mediator. And when we speak about Jesus Christ, it is proper for us to speak of Christ as our mediator. We love the language of Savior, and we love the language of Redeemer, but the language of mediator carries with it uh, more than just he saves us, but it tells us how he saves. He saves in a threefold manner, as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. And if you remember when we spoke about Christ the mediator, Jesus Christ isn't necessarily a third party that comes in between uh, two parties. He's not C that comes between this drama between A and B. One example of that would be if Antonio was uh, in a little bit of heat with Anthony. Antonio would be A, Anthony would be B, and they would need a mediator, if they call it a mediator, they would need a mediator to come and reconcile their differences. And me, I would be C, I would be a third party. But with Jesus Christ, it's a little bit different in his work of mediation. He doesn't just go in between two parties. He is one party and assumes the other party. He is truly God and he assumes true humanity. He takes on himself the party that has offended the primary party. He places his hands on both parties. He is the God-man. That is why he's able to be our perfect mediator. He's able to be our perfect representative. The one who is able to go before us, to do for us what we should have, but we cannot, because we are in Adam, do for ourselves. And what Christ does for us, is he lives a life as our prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he teaches us God's word. He is God's mouthpiece. In fact, he is the final mouthpiece of God, as Hebrews 1 tells us. In those latter days, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he speaks to us by his son. Jesus Christ is the prophet that shows to us our sin. He reveals to us the will of God. And as priests, he offers up a sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice. He offers up a one time sacrifice, a sacrifice that is in no need of repeating. A sacrifice that washes away completely 
the sins of those who are in Adam. And as king, Jesus Christ conquers our greatest enemy. On the cross, he conquers sin. And in his resurrection, he conquers death. Jesus Christ, as king, conquers our enemies. And we, therefore, come under his rule. And he, as our perfect king, now leads us. And if you remember, the way that Jesus Christ came to this office or this threefold office of prophet, priest and king was through his public ordination service. The baptism of Jesus Christ was his public ordination service, just as when one and the Presbyterian church or even our church or other churches will have an ordination service where one will be inaugurated into the ministry of elder. Same way with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is inaugurated into the office of mediator and into the office of prophet, priest and king. It is there where he is publicly identified as our Messiah. And the voice from heaven is public affirmation that this one from Nazareth is the skull crushing seed of the woman. What happens next in the life of Jesus Christ? We have talked about Jesus Christ's baptism and what it signifies and what it meant. Now, what's the next event in the life of Christ? And as we read throughout the Gospels, we see that after the baptism of Jesus Christ, we see the temptation of Jesus Christ. After maybe the most exciting time in the life of Jesus Christ, the moment that he's been anticipating ever since he was a little boy, he then comes to the most or one of the most dreadful times in his life. You see, at the baptism of Christ, there was something going on where the Holy Spirit descended upon the person of Christ according to his human nature. The Holy Spirit was preparing Jesus for one of the greatest battles that he would ever face. It is in the wilderness for 40 days where Jesus will be tempted by Satan. But it's interesting, though. And we will speak about this when we talk about the temptation of Christ. But it's not as if Satan was waiting for Jesus in the wilderness. But rather, Jesus was led, was forced to the wilderness where he initiated the battle. And where Satan appears to try to uh, sway his faith. If you look at Luke chapter 4. We have the narrative of the temptation of Christ. And I just want to read to you what uh, Luke 4 verses 1 through 13 says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan 
and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Notice the response of Christ. He says in verse four, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it was delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from me here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What we see in the temptation of Christ is Satan giving Jesus, or I should say Satan, Satan taking his best shot at Christ. It is Satan's attempt to try to lure Christ away, to try to um, dis, or I should say, to try to uh, um, not use that that title that was given to Jesus Christ. You are the Son. He's trying to erase that title. If you are the Son of God, if you are the one whom the Father just proclaimed you to be, then do this and do that. If you are that one, he's trying to, in other words, discredit his name discredit who he is and who the father affirmed him to be. And in every case, what do we see in Jesus Christ? At every temptation, Jesus Christ says, it is said. Now, many say, well, the way that we are to defeat Satan and all of his minions is by taking the example of Christ. We are to combat the evils and darkness of this world with the word of God. And yes, I agree. That is true. But there's also something deeper we see at every response from Jesus to Satan. Yes, Jesus Christ combats every temptation with God's word. But we also see that Jesus combats Every temptation from the devil by his faith. Before Jesus Christ, or we should say, what's behind every single scriptural reference that Jesus throws at Satan is an unwavering faith in his Father. And this is one of the aspects of the life and ministry of Christ that many don't really consider when they are speaking of Jesus Christ. 
We tend to think of Jesus Christ and rightfully so as him coming and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he lives the perfect life for us. He obeys the law of God perfectly for us. All the promises, every type is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He does it all. But rarely do we mention the faith that Jesus Christ had. Jesus Christ in his life and ministry was a man of faith. He walked by faith. He spoke in faith. He believed in the promises of God. And this evening, saints, I want us to consider the faith of Jesus Christ. The faith of Jesus Christ. And if someone was to ask you, did Jesus Christ have faith? Well, pretend you didn't just hear what I just said. But it's quite of a strange question, is it not? Considering who Jesus Christ is. And I think at times we can um, not consider who Jesus Christ is and what he did. When we say, did Jesus Christ have faith? We are not saying with respect to his divine nature. Of course, Jesus Christ, as God, did not have faith. But Jesus Christ as man, if we say, did Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, have faith? Then maybe we can answer it a little bit better. And what we see from the scriptures and what we read from our reformed tradition is that Jesus Christ was the quintessential man of faith. So what is faith, though? How are we and how would we define faith? Well, faith is a response to God and his word. Faith is a response to God and his word. And this response to God and his word is seen in three ways. It's seen in three ways. First, faith responds to God and his word in knowledge of who God is and what he has revealed. Faith responds to God and his word in knowledge of who God is. And what he has revealed. Number two, faith is a response to God and his word in assessed or agreement to what God has revealed in the form of commands, promises and threats. It's you agreeing with God's commands, with his promises and with his threats. And lastly, faith is a response to God and his word by simply trusting in God alone. And its core, at its core, in a very nutshell, faith believes God in every word that proceeds from God's mouth. At its core, faith believes God and believes every single word that comes from God's mouth. And in the life of Jesus Christ, we see 
all three components of one's faith at work. Jesus knew God. He said in John 8:55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Jesus accepted God's will for him on earth. Hebrews 9 or 10:9 quoting Jesus says, "Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will." And Jesus trusted in his father to reward him based on promises the father made to him in eternity past. Isaiah 53 verses 11 through 12. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that he shall bear their iniquities. And here's the promise. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And, I, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ lived a life of complete faith. Jesus believed all of what God said. Now, we have to make a distinction here between the faith that Jesus Christ had and the faith that we have. Jesus Christ didn't necessarily and it wasn't necessary for him to believe in God. But rather, Jesus believed God and his word. Jesus knew that God existed. Everyone knows that God exists. But as James 2 tells us, verse 19, that even the demons believe and they shudder. So it's not enough to believe in God, but rather Jesus had to have faith and believe that the father's will was good. That was the faith that Christ had. Believing that God was a good God. And his will was good. Even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. Herman Bobbing says. Naturally, faith for Christ was not, as it is for us, so he's making a distinction here, trust in the grace and mercy of God. What he means is, we, by faith, trust in the grace and mercy of God. Why? Because we are sinners. Jesus Christ wasn't a sinner. He didn't necessarily have to trust in the grace and mercy of God. Herman Bobbing goes on and says, he says, faith for Christ was nothing other than the, than the act of clinging to the word and promises of God. A holding on to the invisible one. That was faith for Jesus Christ, holding on to the word and promises of God. Augustine says, faith is to believe what you do not yet see. And the reward for this faith is to see what you believe. And this quote from Augustine really encapsulates the life of faith that Jesus lived. He is the fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 5.12. 
the man who walks by faith and not by sight. But what was Jesus believing God for? If there was promises made to Jesus Christ in eternity past, what was he believing in? What was he looking forward to? What were these promises Jesus would uh, believe that the Father would give to him? First, Jesus believed that the Father would glorify him. John 17, Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus believed that his father would glorify him. Secondly, Jesus believed that God would sustain him in the grave. Psalm 16, 1, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Jesus believed that his God would preserve him. Third, Jesus believed that God would rise him from the dead. Mark 10, verses 33 to 34. And I think this is one of the most glorious verses in all of the New Testament, if not the Bible. So we were going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He will do all these things. But in three days, he will rise. Here we see that the father made promises to the son. But the interesting thing about all of these promises is that none of these promises will come about until after his death. Every single promise that the father promised to the son will not come about until after Jesus Christ died on a cross. So what I want us to see now is how Jesus throughout his life lived with unwavering faith. And I want us to look at three areas of Jesus' life where we see his faith on display. First, at his birth and early life. Second, during his earthly ministry. And third, at his death, where we see, these, uh, where we see Christ's faith put on display. And I believe that once you see the faith of Jesus Christ, you are going to be in awe of your Savior. And then you will be better for knowing the type of faith that Christ had, even in the midst of the most dire and difficult circumstances. So first, let's see the unwavering faith of Christ as a baby and a young child. Now, you might say, how and where do we see the faith that Jesus had as a baby. Where in Scripture do we, can we point to to see the faith that Jesus Christ had as a baby? Well, pictures of Christ's faith can actually be traced back to the Psalms. In fact, much of the life and ministry of Christ can be traced back to the Psalms. And we see in Psalm 22, although it is David speaking, it is Ultimately, speaking of Jesus Christ. And what we see in Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10, we have a picture of the faith Jesus Christ had as a child. Verses 9 and 10, what glorious verses we have before us. It reads, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. 
You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Here we see the faith that Jesus Christ, even in his mother's womb, had. In the very womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus believed God. It reads, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And after his birth, throughout the various stages that infants go through, the faith of Jesus continued to increase. That as he grew in grace, he also grew in faith. That is why the Bible says that he grew in favor with God. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin says, Christ, uh, having in him from the instant of his, of his conception, the Holy Spirit, he as man might fix and place all his care and hope in God alone. At the moment of conception, Jesus Christ placed his faith in God, in God's word, and his promises. We see the faith of Jesus uh, as a 12-year-old boy in a temple. After his parents catch him in the temple, what does Jesus tell his parents? Why are you looking for me? And here's the faith we see. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or in other words, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus, even as a young boy, was passionate to do the father's business. As a young boy, Jesus was passionate to do the father's will. All that the father commanded, Jesus from birth to 12 years old to his teenage years up to when he was 33 years old, was passionate to do all of what God said. Now, we don't know much about the early life of Jesus. But we do know that he was obedient to his father and his mother. And us knowing that he was obedient to his father and mother points to who he was ultimately obedient to. To his spiritual father, his true father, his father in heaven. So we see from the very beginning of Jesus' life as a baby in the womb of Mary to being 12 years old, being caught in the temple, he had an unwavering faith and belief in God and God's promises. And as Christ grew in stature, we see also his faith maturing and his hope in those promises maturing. So now let's consider the faith that Jesus had throughout his life or his earthly ministry. Now, there are many reasons, saints, why Jesus could have struggled to believe God's promises. There are a thousand reasons why Jesus could have struggled to believe God and his promises. In fact, if we did a survey of the life of Jesus, what we will see is Jesus lived a life of setback after setback after setback. After setback, saints, if you think your life is bad, consider the life of Jesus Christ. 
First, we see and, and throughout the life of Jesus, what we see is his faith to believe God was constantly being tested. First, we see Christ's faith was te- uh, tested after his baptism. After his baptism, the spirit leads him into the wilderness where Christ's devotion to his father's will would be tested by Satan. Christ's faith was tested by the failings of his disciples, the unbelief of his family, the wicked rejection of his ministry by the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel. If there was for any reason for Christ to turn back and abort mission, he had every reason to do so. Saints, we cannot for one moment believe that Jesus in any way, shape, or form, lived an easy life. But at every moment, his faith was greatly tested. And at each test of his faith, the threat of his father's displeasure remained in Christ's mind. There was one thing that Jesus Christ did not want. There was one thing that he dreaded the most, and that was displeasing his father. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 to 38 tells us, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And hear this. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That last line was in the mind of Jesus Christ at every moment in every second of his life. Christ did not want to displease his father. And we see on three separate occasions the father, like a good father, reassuring his son that he takes delight in his obedience. At the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open up and the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in John 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And in the midst of the stress, in the midst of Christ going over the edge and having some sort of despair, some sort of fear and worry, the Father says, or he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. In all of Christ's setbacks, he had to trust and believe that his father would remain true to his word. That his father would justify him. When almost everyone at every single point in his ministry was against him. I mean, think about 
Jesus Christ's ministry. Maybe save for his mother. Everyone turned his back on him. Everyone. And in the midst of people turning their back on Christ, he remained faithful to his father. As the scripture says, his face was as a flint. He kept his eye on his father's will. It was the will of Christ to do the father's will. And when we speak of the will of Christ and stay with me here, when we say that it is Christ's will to do the father's will, we must define what we are talking about. Jesus, as the God man, has two natures. He's truly God and truly man. Which means that he has two wills. He has a divine will and he has a human will for whatever has a nature has a will. You have a human nature, so you have a human will. According to his divine will, Jesus never submitted to the father's will. He didn't need to for the father's will was the will of the son. They share the same will. But with respect to his human nature, Jesus learned obedience. With respect to his human nature, Jesus grew in his submission to the Father's will day by day. We see throughout the life of Christ, he was all about doing the Father's will. He says in John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. One a theologian has said that uh, many have life verses. And I'm sure that you have life verses. This was Jesus Christ's life verse. It was John 6.38. It was not to do my own will. But the will of one who sent me. I've come to do the will of the Father. He says in John 4.34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. All that the father commanded. All that the father obligated to the son. Jesus throughout his life submitted to. He was the man of Psalm 48. Which says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. Christ lived a life of unwavering faith. And we see this unwavering faith of our Lord in the most dire, in the most strenuous, in the most difficult of all circumstances. The testing of our Lord's faith on the cross. So let's consider the faith Jesus Christ had at his death. If there was ever a time for Christ to doubt his mission, if there was ever a time for him to call down angels and for him to be released from his mission. If there was ever a time where Jesus Christ was to push that red button and abort mission, it was on Golgotha's hill. It was on Calvary. On the cross, Jesus found himself cursed. He experienced darkness. He was deserted by those whom he loved. He was physically beaten. 
He was ridiculed, mocked, and spit on. And he was separated from his father. On the cross, Jesus, the Holy One, became Jesus, the sin bearer. And as each and every one of our sins was imputed unto Christ, as the full weight of the wrath of God was being placed upon the head of Jesus Christ, the faith of Christ never diminished. Although it was dark, his faith was still shining bright as a sun. Consider two sayings of Christ on the cross. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many take this verse and they want to focus on the last half of this verse and try to figure out and wonder what does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken by God? But we must take note that whatever is happening between the Father and the Son, before we can even look at that, Christ, or this verse, exemplifies the great and unwavering faith that Jesus Christ had in his God. Notice, he says, my God, my God. In the midst of its awful darkness, Jesus clung to the divine hand of his Father. In the midst of separation, he still cried out, and God was still his God. He never lost faith. He never lost hope in his Father. James Campbell says beautifully, when he felt as if he had been forsaken, the anchor chain of his faith did not snap. When he felt as if he had been forsaken, the anchor chain of his faith did not snap. In history's darkest hour, Jesus nevertheless believed the words of Isaiah 53, 6, that he who vindicates me is near. Jesus believed God even until his final breath. And in his dying breath, we see Christ's final profession of faith. Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mark Jones has said his life, his faith-filled life was preparation for his faith-filled death. Each day, Jesus lived the words of David in Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand, I commit to my spirit. Every single day, he was preparing himself for that time when he would place all of his faith and trust in his father and hand over his spirit, all of his work to the father. And friends, the handing over his spirit to his father signifies Christ's ultimate act of faith. Jesus lived a perfect life to God's moral law. He obeyed every command the Father had given him. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He'd done it all. And his giving of his spirit to the Father 
is Jesus trusting and believing that the Father would reward him based on his life, based on this perfect life of faith and obedience. It's almost as if the son is saying, Father, I trust in you so much that you will justify and vindicate me by rising me from the dead. So, saints, in summary, what have we learned this evening? If we learned anything, it's this, that Jesus Christ was a man of faith and hope. Just by three simple aspects of his life. At his birth, he believed God. During his life, he had every single reason to turn back. But he remained faithful. And in his death, as he was forsaken by God, God never stopped being his God. And he never stopped calling God his God. He was a pilgrim in this world who walked by faith and not by sight. He was a wanderer. He was a stranger to this world. As a young child, he was consumed to do the will of his father. And during his earthly ministry, though his family doubted him, though his disciples abandoned him, though his friends denied him and his fellow Jews rejected him, Jesus had faith to trust that his father would one day vindicate him. And with respect to our salvation, saints, the faith that Jesus had is of utmost importance. For if Jesus did not believe God perfectly and consistently and intensely, then he would then we would have no hope for salvation. If Jesus Christ did not have this type of faith, then we would have no hope for reconciliation, no hope for being adopted as sons and daughters of God. All of those spiritual blessings that Pastor Antonio spoke about this morning would not be ours if Jesus Christ did not have unwavering faith. Saints, in light of what that's all been said, I don't know about you, but when I was preparing this, sometimes I would have to just stop and just be in awe of my Savior. That he lived the most difficult of life. But his faith was never difficult. It remained constant. We sing, set our eyes on Jesus. But Jesus actually lived it. He set his eyes on his father. He never questioned. His faith never wavered. And although his feelings fluctuated... His faith never diminished. So how are we to live in light of this lesson? What are some of the practical ways and things we can take from this lesson? Well, it's simply this. We are to follow in our Lord's footsteps. We are to do what Jesus Christ has done. The faith that Jesus Christ had is the faith that we are to mirror we are to have the same type of faith that Jesus Christ had. Gerardus Voss says, Jesus 
has not produced faith in us while himself living above the plane and beyond the need of faith. It is through his own perfect exercise of faith that he helps believers to follow his own footsteps. Jesus gives us faith because he first lived by faith. Every gift that we have was first given to Jesus Christ. We live by faith because Christ lived by faith. That is why we say that we are to believe in Christ by faith alone, because Christ actually lived by faith alone. Christ's faith provides for us a pattern of how we are to live. And this morning we heard a wonderful sermon by Pastor Antonio. And one of the things that struck out to me or stuck out to me was when he said, we might not have earthly riches, but we have God. We think about that. We might not have every single thing that we want, but we have the one who we so desperately need. We have God. And the same could be said about the life of Christ. When one comes to Jesus, when, and uh, when that one comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What does Christ say? The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Saints, Jesus Christ had no earthly riches. But he had God. And he had the promises of God. And he had faith that his God would vindicate, justify, and reward him with every single thing that he promised him. Yes, he didn't have a mansion, but he left his disciples and he leaves us his peace. No, he didn't have wealthy things to give us, but he gives to us his spirit. The same spirit that he relied on at every testing of his faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ is the same faith that you have in dwelling within you. You can overcome because the same one that helped Christ overcome is in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And when we think about our soul and Pastor Antonio talked about this this morning is how do we know that our soul is well? Yes, by looking at Jesus Christ and him alone. How do we know in light of the storms and waves that keep coming to our life? How can we say with full confidence that our soul is well? Because Christ's soul is well. And we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, by the Spirit. Because Christ was vindicated. Because Christ was justified. Because Christ was rewarded. You will be vindicated. You will be justified. And you will be rewarded. So, friends, when your faith is being tested, when the storms come your way, remember the pioneer, remember the perfecter of your faith, who is Jesus Christ. Let us close with the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. 
The writer of the book of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for, for, the, who, for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.